0: That's IrishTimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you
1: there. Did you know that students get it free? The Irish Times offers a free digital subscription to all full time undergraduates. Keep up to date for free with quality journalism and reporting. Claim yours today at IrishTimes.com slash subscribe slash student. Friday October the 7th and you're very welcome to the weekly Inside Politics Roundup from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan, slightly different format today because Pat Lee, our political editor, joins us from Prague. Hi Pat. Hi Hugh. You're there for the inaugural meeting of the European political community which is this squeeze devised by Emmanuel Macron to bring together all the countries of Western Central and Eastern Europe perhaps with the one or two exceptions uh, in a way which among other things I suppose brings the UK back into a big tent.
0: Yeah, I think um, there's actually two summits going on in Prague over the two days. Yesterday was, as you say, the first meeting of the European political community. And today there's a summit of the 27 EU leaders. So that's ongoing uh, as I speak to you. The EPC, as everyone around here is calling it, uh, seemed to have gone off reasonably well yesterday. Uh, I mean, I think it has two purposes. One, I think, was to have a European forum That wasn't the EU that the UK could come to and stay sort of bound in to, you know, the wider European community. And the second part of the the purpose for it, I think, was to have a sort of a halfway house uh, for those countries that are either candidates... Countries for EU membership or want to be candidate countries for EU membership at some stage in the future, and some nervousness amongst some of those countries that it shouldn't, you know, become a sort of a stalling process for their uh, for their memberships. But um, and, and and certainly a number of them, such as the Albanians, were very keen to make this point that their journey towards membership of the European Union should not be delayed by the advent of the European political community. But similar, but uh, again, they were saying last night, everybody was 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 reassured. I think it's broadly seen around here as kind of a, a success that. Maybe, I guess, because the benchmark for success was so very low. Uh, I mean, they they all got together. They agreed to have further meetings in the future. There wasn't any agreed conclusions or anything so troublesome uh, as that. And, uh, you know, the, there wasn't a punch up between uh, the Armenians and the Az- Azerbaijanis, uh, uh, nor indeed between the, uh, the British and the French. So uh, I think it's generally seen as a success, as to whether it goes on to be anything more than just an occasional talking shop. Uh, You know, I I guess we'll have to wait and see what happens with it.
1: Well, it's good to get that broader picture on it, but obviously from a selfish geographical perspective, from an Irish perspective, uh, what's most interesting is Liz Truss's arrival there. Uh, Amidst, I, I think it's fair to say, quite a shift in tone, if nothing else, over the last week or so on the question of the Northern Ireland Protocol.
0: Yeah, that's one of the things uh, that, that very evident here, the shift in the British tone. And, and not just, you know, we were talking about this perhaps earlier in the week about the shift in tone towards Ireland. There was that extraordinary apology by Steve Baker, who is you know <laughs> I use the word obviously av- av- but he's he's only a junior minister in the Northern Ireland office so he's not exactly a big cabinet beast uh, in the UK but um He is an arch-Brexiteer. He is one of the people who derailed Theresa May's Brexit deal with a a revolt on the Tory benches. So for him to come out and make that apology for not taking Ireland's interests or Ireland's views into uh, account was quite extraordinary and was greeted first in Dublin, I think, with a degree of caution. But as the week has gone on and there's been further outreach between the British and Irish sides. Foreign Secretary James Cleverly meeting with uh, Simon Coveney for dinner in London last night and more good vibes coming out of that uh, out of that meeting. So there is a growing sense here and he shook me on Martin when he spoke to us yesterday uh, on his way in was quite explicit uh, about this that you know he accepts the the British good faith in the negotiations that have just this week restarted with the European Commission uh, on the protocol. So I think from where we were, say, you know, 10 days ago or so, the atmosphere between the EU and the UK has been pretty much transformed as to whether that improved atmosphere leads to a deal on the protocol or to substantive concessions on either side that might make for a a deal. We just don't know that yet, but certainly the mood music is an awful lot better than uh, than it had been.
1: I was taken by the fact that you quoted the uh, legendary alt country singer Kinky Friedman in your piece um yesterday evening that when god closes a door he opens a window. So if this is a window of opportunity, does it have a a, a clock ticking on it? Uh, I mean, is is there a is there a time scale here to which something of some sort needs to be achieved?
0: Yes and no. So there is a deadline of the end of October by which time if the Northern Executive isn't back up and running, and the DUP say they will not join that executive until such time as the protocol is gone or dramatically reformed. Um, So that's one deadline. On the other hand, what some officials suggest is that there's a real deadline of into next year, because even though the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland has said that there will be an election called if the, uh, if the executive isn't back up and running by that October deadline, the actual elections themselves don't have to take place until into next year. So there's a, I suppose there's a short deadline and, uh, and, and a long deadline. My sense is that you're probably some time away from an actual agreement being made, even if it is to be made. And that is by no means certain uh, at this stage. And you may, you may be a further period then after an agreement. Uh, is made away from securing the buy-in of the dup for resuscitation of the institutions so i take the view there's a there's a slightly you know i i, I don't see this all being done and dusted in uh, in in the next couple of weeks but i think if the political will is there to do it and the political generosity to make concessions on uh, on on either side is there then you know the strict i think the strict legal architecture will find a way to accommodate that
1: i mean i suppose the thing that's that's surprising about this pat is that um Truss's rise to the leadership of the Conservative Party and to become Prime Minister um, among her staunchest backers were the ERG faction in the Tory party of whom Steve Baker is perhaps the most prominent uh, disciple uh, of course and that therefore there was a sense that the the ongoing legislative process which was essentially going to uh, junk the protocol would continue and that you know and that that the Truss government would probably not waver from from that and that's not what we're seeing at all and I note this week that Lord Frost, for example, has been expressing his displeasure, which might be a sign, actually, that there is change of hope.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think you're still at the stage where people are, you know, waiting to see exactly how serious the British are about making a serious effort to come to a deal. I think a key test of that will be what happens with the legislation, which has passed through the Commons, but has yet to begin its journey through the Lords. And, you know, there is significant opposition to it uh, within the Lords. And I think even the people that want to see the legislation on the books, such as Lord Frost, know that it is going to have a long and difficult transit uh, through the House of Lords almost certainly will be amended and sent uh, back to the Commons. And that's a process that could take, you know, how long's a piece of string? That could take nine months, could take a year. But I think it would be interesting to see if the legislation goes to the Lords in October. And if it does, what is the sort of... and context surrounding that transfer to the Lords from the British government. So we were asking Micheál Martin both yesterday and and this morning on on his way, in if he would like to see, you know, postponement of that legislation, he wouldn't be drawn on that because he told us he was of the view that actually people needed to stop doing daily commentary on it and give the talks uh, the time and space to develop into something uh, substantive. But there's no doubt that the tabling of the legislation, which let us not forget in the first place was done by Liz Truss as Foreign Secretary, the tabling of the legislation in the Commons to set aside the protocol and therefore break the agreement that the UK had made with the EU on on the protocol. That was seen as a red line that had been crossed on the part of the EU, as in the EU saw uh, saw that as a, a red line having been crossed. So if there is a pause and a change of mind on the part of the British as to their approach, then the clearest way to do that, aside from all this, you know, better atmosphere and mood music shifting and all that, a concrete way to do that would be to pause the, uh, the the passage of the legislation through Parliament. Now, the British view is that, look, we can keep talking about this and we can keep legislating uh, on it. We can keep the passage to the Lords going and you know we might never have to use this legislation. But I think if the British really wanted to show that they're serious about getting a deal, then they would pause the legislation. And we will know that, I guess, in the coming weeks.
1: Although it should be said, I was listening to Simon Coveney um, this morning on RTÉ Radio, and he seemed extremely sanguine about that time frame. But that basically, it was a very long time frame. This process through the Lords was likely to be was likely to be quite quite drawn out, and he he seemed happy enough with that in terms of the overall timing. Mean, the people who would be least happy, of course, with any uh, any suspension or slowdown, deliberate slowdown by the government of this, would be the DUP, and one imagines they must be shifting slightly uneasily in their seats this week. Yeah. And you've
0: even seen that, you know, there was an immediate response from the from the DUP and from other unionist uh, figures when uh, Steve Baker made his initial apology. And I think there's a very big choice coming up for Geoffrey Donaldson uh, on this, because if there is to be a deal between the UK and the EU, it is not going to it's not going to involve the scrapping of the protocol, right? What is going to happen is that there may be some changes to the protocol and quite substantial changes to... Uh, particularly in the way that the protocol operates. And the EU has uh, has made that clear. But there isn't going to be a tearing up of the protocol or a removal of, of the protocol. It, any future deal is going to involve differences in how the North is treated to the rest of uh, the rest of Great Britain, because without that, then, you know, the whole architecture of the withdrawal agreement uh, falls falls apart. So I think it's the, the very big, decision facing the DUP? Does it make the best that it can of a new agreement that eliminates a lot of the friction in East-West trade between Great Britain and Northern Ireland, but doesn't completely scrap the need for uh, for all checks or for some checking regime? Or does it Kind of continue down a dead end, crying that the Conservative Party has yet again betrayed the uh, the loyal unionists of uh, of Northern Ireland. My guess is that Jeffrey Donaldson is a politician will be inclined to make a deal if he can present it, if he can present whatever deal is agreed, assuming all the time that a deal is agreed, if he can present that as a win for himself and a win for unionism, then, you know, you're back on track in the North with the institutions and so forth. And he could presumably face a future election as the saviour of uh, of the union and, and, and therefore make a serious attempt to once again become the largest party and he would become first uh, first minister. But I guess, we, you know, we we won't know what his likely approach is until such time as there is a deal Are the contours of a deal begin to take shape. And and we're just not at that stage yet. But one way or another, I think there's a very big decision in the medium distance for, uh, for Donaldson and for the DUP.
1: We should bear in mind, of course, that these matters are pretty inconsequential in the greater scheme of things as far as most of the 27 EU leaders uh, gathering there today are presumably their concerns revolve around the war in Ukraine and its consequences, particularly in relation to energy this winter. Yeah, so I
0: suppose two things that are coming out of, of today are the, you know, Unanimous support for Ukraine. Not surprising. That's what you would expect. I gather, um, I gather Ukrainian president Zelensky has uh, addressed. He addressed leaders of the EPC yesterday. He's addressing EU 27 leaders this morning. And, and I, I guess he will, you know, get nothing but unanimous support from that. It was a uh, crowd of, uh, Pro Ukraine demonstrators had gathered outside the gates of the castle this morning as leaders were coming in. One of the uh, one of the banners they were holding was seeking tanks for Ukraine, and there is some chat around that there may be a French announcement of further military aid to Ukraine coming either this evening or, or, or soon. But we don't, as yet, have any confirmation on uh, on that. The other big. Uh, item on today's agenda is of course the consequence of the war in Ukraine and that's the energy crisis across the EU. Now the latest we heard from inside is that uh, European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen hasn't as yet presented her proposals which suggests to me we could be in for a longer afternoon than, uh, than, than was previously envisaged. This is, just for clarity Hugh, this is an informal Summit, uh, not a decision making summit. There won't be agreed conclusions. uh, But I I think EU leaders will be hoping that they can send out some signals of unity on the question of energy subsidies, but certainly going into the summit, we seem a very long way away from that. People are talking about a, a, an energy price cap or a gas price cap, but it means different things to lots of different countries. And there's also the issue of the the 200 billion energy package that the German government has announced. And there's real concern amongst the other countries, that they'll be blown out of the water by this. And there's all sorts of questions about state aid rules. And e- even the I managed to catch a brief bit of Ursula von der Leyen as she went into the castle this morning and she was kind of talking about concerns uh, about the operation, the fair operation of the single market and a level playing field for firms in different countries if German... Firms are boosted by this massive subsidy from their government, so all that sort of stuff is is going to have to be worked out over the coming weeks. I don't think it'll be worked uh, it'll be worked out today, and it's not entirely unlikely. I think that the headlines coming out of the summit this evening will be less about European unity on energy plans and more about European disunity on that. But I, I guess we'll have to wait until the the closing press conferences before we see that.
1: Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I think that's a story which is going to run and run and have more and more salience over the over the weeks ahead. Listen, finally, Pat, we'd like to, uh, on this Friday podcast, just pick an article during the week that took your fancy and that you think people should have a read of.
0: Yeah, the piece I picked, um, Hugh, was Newton Emerson's column uh, in the paper yesterday, which was dealing with the uh, Ireland's Future meeting, which was held in Dublin in the Three Arena last uh, last weekend and we saw 5,000 people gathered to talk about a united Ireland, including Leo Vradker, Mary Lou MacDonald and other, uh, and, and, other politicians. And, um, I think uh, Newton Emerson was ca- was casting a skeptical, not a cynical, but a skeptical unionist eye over the proceedings and pointing out that one of the first things that will have to be done uh, if there is to be a viable plan for a United Ireland. And, you know, we've talked about this a few times before. I, I just don't see the path to a referendum yet. But um, Newton Emerson was Pointing out that uh, you know that one of the first things that will have to be talked about and thought about is the finances of uh, of of a United Ireland. So I would recommend uh, Newton's piece for anyone to have a look at.
1: And actually, I would also recommend a piece about that event at the Three Arena That's Justine McCarthy is writing in today's Irish Times about it. She she says, uh, in my view, quite rightly that. Ireland's future, the organisation, has been the subject of a smear campaign by innuendo, that it's allegedly a front for Sinn Féin, and she points out reasons why that is not the case. But she also says that the party partisanship, shown by many in Saturday's audience who gave Mary Lou Macdonald a standing ovation, not only gave succour to the whispering campaign, but will have alienated others who, with some encouragement, may wish to join the debate. She basically says that the most interesting voices of that conference were people who came from an Ulster Protestant or Northern Ireland unionist background. And I thought it was interesting because it chimes with something which which Brendan O'Leary who is you know quite an expert on this subject said to me when we were talking about his new book which is that there's a paradox at the heart of this which is that the party which is most uh, most committed and most energetic and most enthusiastic about Irish unification i.e. Sinn Féin is also the party that turns off the people who need to be persuaded into Irish unification in the first place and I think that's a that's an interesting subject which we'll run on one but we are going to leave it there for now thanks for joining us from, from Prague Pat I know, I know the Wi-Fi was terrible so I'm glad we managed to make the connection Thanks, Hugh. Just to say this podcast is produced by Declan Conlon. We're going to be back next week, same time as usual. But until then, goodbye and thanks very much for listening.